There were silver linings in lockdown. The quiet, the lack of pollution, the family bike trips, a nation pulling together, the kinder tone in politics. So as we head back towards the old normal, what do we want to keep from the new normal? And will we be able to keep it? Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail, I'm asking four experts in their fields to do some crystal ball gazing. I wonder how many employers who had never really thought about uh, work-from-home options before or had put it all in a too-hard bucket or had thought that it might be problematic in one way or another, having been forced to try it, might be open to opportunities in letting workers continue with it if they like. Taking time to connect with each other in ways that they haven't before, to help each other and support each other. At some point, our political leaders have to step up and go, yep, this is what we're doing and this is why and this is how exciting it is. There is a chance that things things could change in, in some small manner uh, permanently, but equally a good chance, if not better, that you know, within a few years we, we will just get back to the, the way things were. One of the most remarkable aspects of COVID-19 is how it transformed the hustle and bustle of city centres into deserted, Wild West-style deserts of glass and steel. So how has the pandemic changed the vision for our biggest city? Are there outside-the-box ideas, opportunities to change things up big time for the future? I asked Auckland Council's Chief of Strategy, Megan Tyler, what she'd like the city to pick up and run with. And she turned her focus on its residents. I'm not sure if I'm going to have a, a, a one kind of project here, but and, and council has, has a role to play, but is, is not the only one here. I guess for me, I would love to see initiatives that enable communities to, uh, I guess, to help themselves to continue so much of what I've been seeing in the last couple of months of you know, people taking time to connect with each other in ways that they haven't before, uh, to help each other and support each other, uh, regardless of uh, income or situation or employment, and just to somehow see communities uh, and enable people to all have the opportunity to prosper and to to grow uh, as people and therefore, you know, as a city and as a region. Yes, but what about the big ideas? Will Auckland's visionary projects, the Sky Path, the City Rail Link, will they gain momentum or will they burn up in our belt-tightening bonfire? Yeah, I, I think there's a, a couple of really dangerous things that are probably going to come at us uh, out of this and, and one of them is that projects like that will be seriously under threat. NZ Herald senior writer Simon Wilson's been accused of big thinking before. One of the things that's, that's been fascinating is that we've discovered we're, a, we're a, a society with government structures and kind of societal buy-in that allows us to do really big things really quickly to productive good. You know, so the question of uh, rough sleepers got resolved, and it didn't get resolved in a long-term permanent way, but it got resolved, um, and it's something to build on there. We found that uh, if we want to, we can have much cleaner air uh, and and much less polluted streets if we want to. There are other examples like that where it went the other way. So because there was a health, an outstanding health issue, that one did get resolved, but you know the budget contained $56 million for 
beefing up the insulation of another 9,000 poorly insulated homes. Sounds good, I guess. There are actually 600,000 poorly insulated homes in this country. So fixing 9,000 of them was old thinking. You know, the post-COVID thinking ought to be, actually, we can spend the money to fix that properly for society. It would employ a vast number of people and the health outcomes and all the other outcomes that come from kids and everybody else being able to live in a warm, dry home uh, would be immeasurable. Mm -hmm. But the budget only had old thinking on that. It didn't see it as an opportunity for uh, the new kind of thinking we need, which is a shame. Let's do some of that new kind of thinking then. What are your most sort of wild or, or, or dramatic or, or, from your own point of view, interesting ideas for <laughs> Auckland, and I guess for, for New Zealand more widely, that, that have sort of come, come out of this? I think one of them, um, if you think about Auckland, um, Auckland not only is facing COVID, but right now is also facing the, the drought. Um, Auckland needs, as the country needs, Auckland needs the ability for uh, residents, people in their homes, to be able to collect rainwater and use it for uh, grey water on their gardens and their toilets and so on. Um, Regulations make that really difficult at the moment, um, but you can imagine how transformative it would be if we could change the regulations and incentivise people to collect their rainwater and use it. Because we're going to the drought we're facing at the moment, and that Auckland is in now and will be severely in over summer, is not going to be the last time this happens. It will happen with more frequency and and greater severity. So that's a really big one that could be done pretty straightforwardly, and there's a lot of employment opportunity in that. So it's that kind of thinking. And what it also does is that it points back to water care, and it says, okay, the the economic model for water care, which essentially is will they will sell us water as much as they can, uh, has to change. Um, it's not in water care's interest to have people collect their rainwater because then we won't need so much water from water care. Um, the same applies in electricity. If it was possible for communities to develop microgrids where they collect their own power from solar or wind or whatever and share it amongst each other and if they've got surplus, they sell it back into the grid, that's a fantastic model for a lot of communities in New Zealand, particularly rural communities, but also some suburban ones too. But it requires a change of model because it's not in the interest of the power companies for people to be collecting or generating their own power. So we need new thinking about those sorts of things. You mentioned really early on, actually, that a a philosophical cornerstone, I guess that's the best way to describe it, actually, a philosophical cornerstone of this rebuild throughout the country has to be greenliness, and mm. environmentalism and that that or at least environmental consciousness and awareness yeah. and I, I i'm curious like how 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 do we do that how how do we make sure that that is an important thread that runs through all elements of of whatever changes there are to our society well it requires political leadership we've got to have political champions and there are very few of them in Parliament, and there are very few of them on the Auckland Council um, or other councils, though there are some as well. So that's, that's a core component. We've got to have regulations that um, that just beef up the expectations. One, one good example is, is green buildings. Commercial buildings in cities, by and large, are extremely inefficient, um, wasteful of energy, and in many cases, not healthy to be in. There could be regulations to overhaul that. The Green Building Council has been calling for that for some time and they've got draft regulations available. Um, If the regulations said, okay, 
all new buildings are going to have to be built to a much higher green standard, so they have passive ventilation, passive heating, um, are healthy to be in, and are, are low on uh, either carbon neutral or at least very low carbon uh, use. And we're going to retrofit buildings to those standards as well. If we if we did that and had the regulations to do it, it creates a lot of jobs, it makes a better city, it makes a healthier population. Now we can do all those things, but uh, it needs the political leadership. It's very hard to see that actually there would be political opposition to it, but it does require the leadership and it requires the selling of the message. You know, the environmental groups can talk to that, do talk to that blue in the face about all this, but um, at some point our political leaders have to step up and go, yep, this is what we're doing and this is why and this is how exciting it is. And what project would Simon Wilson put in place if he was in charge? A cycle network would be the one for me, and the reason is not simply because people want to cycle, but because when you build a city that is safe for cycling, you are building a city that is safe and functional for everybody, because you have to take on the values uh, that that will apply to everybody. So I think a cycle network is a key, not just to transport, but to civilizing the city itself. Okay, so let's look at the nation, or more specifically, the nation's representatives. Pre-COVID, Parliament at times sounded, shall we say, boisterous? Yeah, let's go with that. Whatever that industry called moining is, I'm having difficulty trying to understand it. I can't win the joke stacks. I'm looking at one. Actually, LSV is making a difference, and we've seen the numbers. Well, if you want to listen to the answer, then just... Zip it, sweetie, I'm getting there. So what it is is... When people are out there being beheaded, I'm sorry, but this is the time to stand up and be counted. Get some guts and join the right side. Get some guts. Over the past couple of months, since we've had nothing better to do, the 1pm Jacinda and Ashley show and the Epidemic Response Committee have become essential viewing. But the chair of the ERC, former National Party leader Simon Bridges shot himself in the foot of it with his inability to read the room. I mean, I guess a lot of the things that the government has done and proposed probably aren't too dissimilar to what uh, National would have done. And, uh, yeah, he just really hasn't done a very good job of... uh, If there is an alternative, of getting that across. Sometimes he can come across as being a bit bombastic and a bit... And I think that's strong, but... Oh, I just like, oh, my goodness, just speak to someone. You're not speaking at someone all the time and always having to get your point across. National's new leader, Todd Muller, wants to take a different tack. I'm not interested in opposition for opposition's sake. We're all tired of that kind of politics. I'm about ideas that get results. I'm proud of working across Parliament on the Zero Carbon Act. And wherever I have the opportunity, work with other parties for our country's good, I will do so. So could COVID-19 be the prompt we need to re-civilise what goes on in the House of Representatives? Sam Sashdeva is Newsroom's political editor. There's been a, a certainly a desire, I think, from the, the populace and re- reflected in our politicians for, for greater unity and uh, a feeling of common sacrifice. You know, politics can often be quite divisive about cut and thrust about what what separates us in terms of political beliefs but I think when everyone is is dealing with a you know a national crisis and in fact a global crisis I think people want to be you know lifted up 
by our, our politicians rather than torn apart into two different camps. Has that been a difficult adjustment, do you think, for politicians themselves to make? Uh, yeah, I, I think it has been difficult for them to, to adjust to this. I, I mean, the system of politics, Westminster democracy, has endured for a long time, and that is an inherently adversarial rather than collaborative. You know, they, they will work behind the scenes, government and opposition MPs, on, on changing legislation at select committees, but it, it is kind of built into the process that you've got, you know, two different sets of, of politicians sort of facing each other across the debating chamber. So it, it takes a bit of a a mindset shift, I think, to, to get to where we are now, and, and that's where, I think, as we've seen, some politicians have proven more able to do that than others. Some of that maybe you can put down to the idea of, you know, this is a Westminster-style parliament that we use here, and that has, you know, many centuries of history and almost a way of doing things. It's a difficult institution to dramatically transform in a, in a short period of time. Yeah, precisely. And I mean, you know, uh, the New Zealand Parliament has been through two world wars, the 1918 pandemic and, and countless other um, major world events, and, and yet it's managed to largely maintain its, its shape and tone. So, yeah, you can't really write, write the ship or, or turn it around that easily. You're right. I mean, th- there is a chance, you know, I think with any of these sort of global level events of of, of tectonic change, I think some observers refer to it as, but it's it's not guaranteed. So there, there is a chance that things could change in, in some small manner uh, permanently, but equally a good chance, if not better, that, you know, within a few years, we, we will just get back to the, the way things were. Do you think it'll take that long, a few years? <laughs> Maybe not, actually. It might well be shorter. I mean, just this week, the Labour Party's announced that they're unsuspending their campaign formally, asking for um, donations. I think the National Party did it a week or two ago. So, yeah, in the New Zealand context, at least, the election is only less than four months away. So we're we're already starting to see a little bit of a return to, yeah, the, the way things have normally been practised. There, there will be, you know, longer-run effects I think, you know, we'll be at le- possibly at level two or level one for, for quite some period of time. Border restrictions will remain in place. So that will give a sense of a, um, I think, a heightened environment compared to, you know, how the country and the world normally operates. But, yeah, months, m- more than years, probably more likely, I'd say. Are there elements to how politics has worked during the pandemic that you think could improve our political system? Yeah, yes, I, I do think there are things that we should we should look at adopting and that have probably changed politics for the better in, in the last um, few months. I mean, you touched on it before when you said, you know, not, not necessarily unity or agreeing with everything, but constructive criticism, framing your critiques of, of policy and and politics in a, in a sort of a more positive way. And we've seen that from some opposition politicians. I also think the Epidemic Response Committee, which was set up while Parliament was suspended, actually worked really well in its its first few weeks. It was kind of more... Um more, more of a, a discussion and uh, and a chance to sort of bounce bounce ideas back and forth, and it was it was less sort of overtly partisan. That that did start to change, probably, uh, you know, the further we got on and as as Parliament came back. But it, it showed a, a little bit of a glimpse, I think, of what is possible with these sort of different methods of of operation. You obviously specialise in, in New Zealand politics, but uh, I imagine that you've had a, a keen eye on how different countries around the world have dealt with this. If you look at the countries 
which, I mean, it's hard to gauge, but if you look at the countries which are seen to have dealt with COVID-19 maybe well, if we can describe it that way, are there commonalities or you know shared themes behind those countries, their, their governments, the way that their politicians have communicated or, or dealt with this issue? I think it's relatively hard to to draw a common thread through through the nations that have performed well and say definitively this is why they have succeeded. I mean, there's there's a you know uh, the countries that have performed well in terms of their infection rates span a range of of continents. You know, you've got uh, Taiwan, which has performed quite well. New Zealand, some of the Scandinavian countries, uh, Denmark and Norway, I believe. So there's there's diversity in terms of I suppose their political um, ideologies and and their sort of more practical cultural setups. I suppose what what seems to unite the sort of high achievers is that they all acted very early and perhaps even at a point when some critics were saying it is too early. But that's that's the problem with you know the exponential growth rate of of COVID nineteen is that. Uh, some some epidemiologists have said that the best time to take action is is when it feels far too early, and it's only um, proved uh, you know right with the the benefit of hindsight. So that's probably been the sort of defining characteristic that they all share. You mentioned before the sense that the public is looking for unity or at least constructive criticism in this kind of situation in a crisis like this. Can you see that lasting, or is that something that is the product of its environment and the time in which it's sort of taken place? I think you're right, and I do think it is relatively time-sensitive. You know, people always talk about wanting constructive politics and, you know, not opposition for opposition's sake. Opposition leaders have said that for time immemorial, but, you know, funnily enough, they, they get back into their old routines. And I think I think the public does too. You know, we're in, a, we're in an elevated state, I suppose, of national crisis. So that, that sort of demands a change from, from politicians. But I think in the, in the medium to longer term, yeah, we will probably see things turn back to something resembling business as usual. An international shutdown won't go unpunished when it comes to the economy, especially when we've locked our number one export earners, tourists, out of the country. Hospitalities in dire straits, unemployment is certainly going to rise. Those mass layoffs have already started. New Zealand will mount up the debt trying to stay afloat. But have we learned any lessons from lockdown about how working life and the economy could function better? Dr Eric Crampton is the chief economist at the NZ Initiative Think Tank, and occasional lecturer at the University of Canterbury. Well, I have really, really enjoyed the opportunity to work from home over the past few months. That was never really an option at our workplace before. I was able to get at least as much done working from home as I ever did at the office. We had an incredibly busy period during lockdown where we were looking at COVID policy response. I wonder how many employers who had never really thought about uh, work-from-home options before or had put it all in a too-hard bucket or had thought that it might be problematic in one way or another, having been forced to try it, might be open to opportunities in letting workers continue with it if they like. So for me, having the kids around the house while I was working, them homeschooling through Khan Academy and through Marginal Revolution University where they can learn economics online for free, I'm very happy now that I'm able to continue working from home except on the days that there's a good reason to go into the office. 
One of the policy areas that we've been really strong proponents of improvements in is around congestion charging. So it's made no sense that we don't charge for space on the road at the most crowded times. And a lot of folks have pushed back on that idea by saying, well, there's just no way of around, around it because work times are inflexible. Um, well, one, you can design the system to make sure that nobody's made worse off by it, but that gets complicated and I don't have to, I, I shouldn't go through it here and now. But where we do have a lot more flexibility now than we did before, it starts becoming a lot more palatable to look at some of the road pricing options that can open up other opportunities, right? So you can imagine a fully dynamic user charge system on the roads that would tell you that, well, if people really are willing to pay a lot of money to go through the Mount Vic Tunnel at peak times in Wellington to get from one side of town to the other, that means that it'd be really expensive for them to shift their times around. And that also tells you that it might make sense to build a second tunnel. If instead you see that the fee that's necessary to ease traffic congestion through the tunnel at peak times is very limited, then there was never really any case for the second tunnel in the first place. And you can start learning those things when you have the pricing regime in place that lets people respond to those prices. And we see then whether things like new tunnels or new roading investments really stack up or whether they're just driven by sort of perceptions about what roads need to be able to carry at some theoretical maximum peak use. That's fascinating. Okay, so so we're talking about so in in those contexts, you're talking about sort of congestion and demand and and, yep. and so on and so forth. Are, are there other examples, other sort of broad areas that this has given you sort of new new perspective on? Well, I've always been a fan of flexible land use planning and mixed use neighborhoods. I wonder what the consequences of more work from home wind up being in that context. So. Previously, city planning rules have been fairly rigid. You've got your commercial district where you've got office towers. You've got places where people are allowed to live. You're not allowed to have much for businesses in those. And then you've got town centers that are allowed to have little bits of business, but not particularly dense. And thousands of pages of, another, of additional specifications around all of that if you look at something like Auckland's unitary plan. Mm -hmm. I wonder whether people being more home-based will increase demand for more mixed-use neighborhoods to make it easier to have more corner cafes, even in residential places. If more people are working from home a lot more often, it, it can be nice to walk over to get a properly made coffee rather than the plunger stuff that I make in my house. Now, I'm lucky enough that I'm about a four-minute walk from Kandala Village, so I can go and do that if I want to. But in other places, it's not as easy zoning rules that might make it easier for someone to set up a coffee kiosk and their front lawn if they wanted to, mm -hmm. or set, set up little businesses like that for more mixed-use environments. I wonder whether some of the opposition to that will abate with some of the changes that we've had. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile phone every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so other people can find us too. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansel and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Sam Sashdeva, Eric Crampton, Megan Tyler and Simon Wilson. Ka kite anō.